Welcome to another edition of Down the HR Rabbit Hole, brought to you by Crescent HR and Crescent Payroll Solutions. As you can tell, I'm not Sandra Zoffner. I am Rochelle Chatney, a senior sales representative for Crescent Payroll Solutions, filling in for uh, Sanders because he's at the beach today. Anyway, <laughs> I'm very excited about today's podcast. Looking forward to it all week long. We have a repeat guest who is fantastic and a fantastic topic. And we're expecting to have fabulous conversations today. But first, I'm going to introduce you to our lovely co-host, Philip Carrillo, who is our HR advisor for Crescent HR. Welcome, Philip. Hello. Thank you for having me, as always. How are you this week? I'm very excited to be here. I'm happy. I'm good. It's the end of the week. It's a Friday, so I couldn't be happier. I know. Hurricane Friday. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but Philip, why don't you introduce our guest today? Well, today we have with us again, Kathleen Perez. Um, and I always omit your last name, your your current last My name. My married name. But <laughs> your then married name. Yeah. I, I work professionally but, uh, as Perez so yes. I have for a long time. I got married a little bit later in life and uh, had a hard time parting with my maiden name. Well, whatever, whatever you go by, we love having you here. Kat Perez is an attorney. She has um, just accolades that I could not even begin to remember and enumerate on this podcast. Um, today, I'm going to uh, introduce a topic. We're talking about implicit bias, what it is, why we're even worrying about it today. Um, as you know, if you've been tuning in for the last few weeks, we've been talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion. And one of the things that we didn't elaborate on uh, all that much in the last few episodes was implicit bias um, and how implicit bias brings to bear on diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts at any corporation really, you might say, is contingent on how well one understands implicit bias, how well, how well aware employees are of the naturally occurrence, uh, occurring nature of implicit bias. And so um, today I think what would be very useful for us is to start a, a real uh, clear definition of what implicit bias is and why it even matters. Please sure. fill us in. Well, I'll say first, I became interested in implicit bias about eight years ago when my firm asked me to be a firm-wide trainer on implicit bias for our um, all of our attorneys and all of our employees. And it was a great fit for me as an employment lawyer to learn more about implicit bias. And after having trained all of our um, lawyers and all of our staff, really enjoying the topic and seeing how it relates to employment law, I then began offering implicit bias training to our clients and, and traveling around and sort of taking this on as a passion project, and it still is today. And more and more people are aware of what implicit bias is today because of um, a lot of the things that are happening in the world. So implicit bias is, is also called unconscious bias. So they're the unconscious product of your encounters from childhood through adulthood and they're influenced by everything about your life from your geographic location, your social class, your mental abilities, profession, age, gender, and the like. And you, you have all of those components, but then you layer onto that the media, stereotypes, the influence of the people around you, and it makes you who you are. You are the product of your experiences throughout your entire life. But those are the things that um, develop how you feel and think about other groups of people. So from a science perspective, I'll back up a little bit. Your brains develop what are called schema, and those are mental frameworks that allow you to apply shortcuts to sort data into broad categories for quick mental processing. 
So that sounds complicated, but I'll give you a really easy example. You learn from a young age what a chair is, and no matter whether it's a, a backless chair, a chair with arms, a different color, you know what a chair is and you know that you sit on it. And so each day when you encounter a chair, you don't have to rethink about, like, what is this object and what do I do with it? And so that applies to everything from the moment you wake up in the morning to brushing your teeth, getting dressed, knowing the way to work. You don't have to give a whole lot of thought to any of those things. Your brain is basically on auto autopilot. And that is critical to our human existence and our ability to move through our day. However, we apply these same schema or categorization to groups of people based on our experiences. And so um, you have things that are operating in your subconscious that help you move through the day, but as those things are applied to individuals or groups of people, and generally based on things known as stereotypes, those can be more harmful. And so we talk about implicit bias because there are many people in this world who are very committed to fairness and they don't necessarily realize that they have implicit bias operating under the surface. And so it's a lot easier to find or identify those people who are intentionally discriminatory or have bad intent, but implicit bias really speaks to everyone else, you know, people who are determined to be fair and equitable and to learn what might make their brain operate in a way where their conscious decisions are really driven by things that are in the unconscious and how can we bring those things to bear um, so that we can make better decisions. Excellent. So that's a very, very, very good overview of what uh, implicit bias is. And what I think would also be helpful is I think any intelligent, uh, intelligent person could infer, I think, how that is applicable and the impact of implicit bias in day-to-day -day behaviors. However, can you contextualize that in a business sense? Why is this important in a business sense? Why are we talking about it? You alluded to the fact that there's a, a now aspect to this, uh, the urgency of this topic. Sure. Well, when we talk about um, implicit bias as an impediment to your DEI goals, there are a lot of companies that have wonderful DEI goals and they can't always figure out why they're not seeing real traction in the numbers. And sometimes it's because individuals are making unconscious decisions that while they're committed to fairness may not bear out so. So let me give you an example. From a legal perspective, if I had a person of color who came in for an interview and I said out loud or on paper, I'm not going to hire you because you're black, you will get sued for that and you will probably, you know, you will probably lose. <laughs> yes. I mean, it's it's discrimination. It's intentional, and it's conscious. It's is that ex what we'd call explicit, explicit bias. bias? It's discrimination. So it's overt. Overt. It's it's in the mind of the person. But operating more under the surface are a lot of other concepts that can also lead to the same result, where a person is not consciously eliminating people of color from the applicant pool, but maybe taking cues that are more subconscious and those lead to this, these detrimental decisions. So let me give you a, an example from a study um, in, in hiring. There are multiple studies that show that there, when, when presented with the exact same resume of a man and a woman, um, Jane and Jack, despite the same resume, hiring uh, managers hire Jack several times more often than they hire Jane. He's rated more highly as being more skilled and more proficient. He's hired and then given a um, higher starting salary. And then he's seen more favorably for mentoring. So not only does 
Jack get hired and he's scored higher, but then once he comes into the company, he starts with a higher salary and then he's seen more favorably for um, mentoring and therefore the whole entire trajectory of his position looks more favorable than Jane. So that's a gender example. There are other studies looking at resumes of black individuals and white individuals and the only thing that's different is the name. And actually in the study related to black and white individuals, the black person's resume is more highly qualified than the white person, the resume that's representative by a white person's name. And in that case, the white person receives callback more than twice as often just a callback for an interview. And you can see how detrimental that impact would be on a business. Certainly, obviously, it's detrimental to the person. Yeah. But if you're the business and you've just passed on a person who's more highly qualified, a person of color, and hired the person who's less qualified, not necessarily intentionally, but just based off of biases related to a person's name, um, that's not good for your business. And it's you know certainly detrimental to the individuals who are applying to the businesses. So that's just one example in the workplace of how implicit bias can creep in. It also can creep in in resumes in terms of what you put down as your social activities. So there are studies that show that um, social activities that seem more what I'll call highbrow, sailing and uh, you know, soccer lacrosse. on yellow yeah, cross, <laughs> but, uh, you know, are seen more favorably, yeah. whereas, um, pick up soccer, things that denote, uh, a lower socioeconomic status of a person are seen less favorably in a resume. And so there are a lot of things in a resume that say who you are, but, you know, to the extent it says you were part of the you know, black student association of some kind, those are signals that maybe intentionally or unintentionally, um, change how, the recruiter who's evaluating resumes may see your resume. And um, those are the kind of things you want to root out by making implicit bias um, more known and educating people, training on it, so that you can eliminate or at least reduce the impact of those kinds of biases. But the hiring situation is only one example. So I have a, I have a question about the hiring situation from talking to really Philip from an HR perspective and you know to you, Kat. Is there a best practice that you can give to HR managers to say, how do we el basically eliminate or reduce their implicit bias without knowing they have implicit bias? Um, first off the top of my head, I'm like, okay, well maybe you were talking about names. Maybe we never look at the names of somebody and when you get a resume, it's printed out, give it to somebody and hide the name. Something like that. Is there a best practice that you can think of that might help to reduce that? Well, there are certainly companies that have gone to a sort of blind, name-blind resume. Like I said, there are other things in the resume that also might indicate things about the person's background. Yeah. And some people may see, view those things favorably or not favorably. Um, I would say a lot, if you're in a bigger corporation, having the recruiters and the screeners educated and trained so that they can um, make sure that those things don't have an impact and make sure that they have a diverse slate of people who move on to the hiring managers. But it's the mindfulness. It's the making sure that you're taking the time. There's a book called Thinking Fast and Thinking Slow by Daniel Kahneman. And it talks about system one and system two thinking. And system one thinking are all the things we talked about. You get up, you put on your clothes, you get in your car, you drive to work, you don't have to think about it. And that's great for all those types of decisions that don't require more thinking. But I have been in the position where I've been given a stack of resumes and I need to figure out who's going to make the final cut for interviews for a summer associate or, or another position like that. And when you act quickly, you tend to act on your quick assumptions. And so I might flip through a bunch of resumes and see the same high school I went to or the college I went to or 
an activity I like, like cooking. And I just assume those people are great because you know what? <laughs> We're all, we all tend to like people who are like us. And so, you know, the system one versus system two thinking asks us to shift over some of these more important decisions into what they'll call system two thinking, which is slowing down, being mindful about your decisions, making sure that you're approaching the decision-making process with enough time and enough effort and consciously attempting to be as fair as you can. And that in and of itself has been shown to have an impact in reducing implicit bias. I absolutely love that. I think about resumes so often as I recruit for for clients or uh, just thinking about my my past history working in the legal services where I had to look at just literally thousands of resumes every single year. And you want to get through them as quickly as you can, right? You have to figure out some way to get through them. It really is an amazing thing to think um, how those little bitty um, signals, how we infer um, little bitty tidbits of information um, so grandly, they become so impactful. Um, and you don't even realize it. I mean, that's. I mean, some people do, and and if they're discounting somebody because of something they've noticed and consciously discount them for that, then that's a different issue. But we're talking about these subtle signals that you don't even realize are having an impact on the person you ultimately choose. Yeah. So there are two things. I mean, I think about perhaps there's somebody in the audience who may be um, putting together their resume, and and. So on one hand, what do you include in a resume if you know that there is such a thing as implicit bias? There's not only does implicit, let me actually just back up a little bit. So not only does implicit bias um, manifest in a visceral kind of, um, you know, human way every single day as we are going about looking at resumes uh, or looking at people in the face or, or walking down the street. Implicit bias is everywhere. We know that. But what we don't actually also understand is that when we're programming, for example, the um, algorithms in your uh, resume parsing system, in your applicant tracking system, you're telling that system what is acceptable and what isn't acceptable. So your implicit bias may seem more technical and may seem more robotic in that case, and therefore we assume it's more objective, but it's all crap in and crap out. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, well, that's, I mean, that's the kind of rule of thumb when you're thinking about data and data analytics that's automated. Yeah, and, and the human element still exists at some level because the human element has to decide. Well, the human element's programmed. Right, the the human machine. and so you told them what you considered to be good and what you considered to be bad, what was a desirable trait, uh, background, activity, whatever it may be. And all so the acceptable resumes that it learned, that the AI learned from mm-hmm. are all have these sorts of tropes of maybe private school or maybe, um, you know, like you were mentioning, even the sports or the hobbies, these are all very important things. I used to tell my attorneys all the time, don't put a hobby. There, That is such an easy way. Humans are humans, and, and there's such an easy way to just negate somebody. It's, it's so easy to dismiss people based on uh, a prejudice. And when I say prejudice, I mean as in, oh, I really don't like hockey, so <laughs> goodbye. <laughs> You're well, next. I, next. <laughs> I actually have a great example about that. So um, at the firm that I worked at, I was in the hiring committee, so I did a lot of interviews, and uh, other people were as well. Who you might be interviewing with on your slate um, m- might differ at each time, but I remember there was a candidate whose interest was like 17th century literature, oh my God, what do I do with that? Like what what, what people <laughs> want to do is they want to find connection and that's so normal. So I'm looking at his resume, I'm like, what can I talk to this person about? And I was like, oh, I'm at a loss here. But the guy that I was interviewing with, the lawyer I was interviewing with, 
was incredibly into literature, and he's a you know um, winning poet. And he was so excited about this candidate, and he got the candidate talking about what the candidate was interested in, which was this literature. And I saw the candidate's um, personality come out and, and all of those things, but I, as the interviewer, I had nothing to say. But that interest sparked interest in, in another interviewer. So I would say that one of the other things is to really just make sure that your panel that interviews people is also diverse and reflects you know, the, the things that you're striving for. One, because it'll make the candidate feel more comfortable to see a different group of people that they you know, can relate to as they come into your business, but also because another person with a different background than you will, will pick up something different about a resume, will ask different questions, um, because we're all gonna look at somebody's resume and try and find something um, to relate to, to ask somebody about. Um, another example that I always give in terms of implicit bias in hiring is to or really for anything with implicit bias, is to think in advance about what you're looking for. What are the qualities of the person? What is the background of the person mm -hmm. that you're looking for? When you say qualities, are you, are you talking like skills, soft skills? Skill set. Um, you know, I want somebody who's a really great marketer. You know, uh, lawyers are a dime a dozen, but somebody who can get some clients in here. That's really important. Um, whatever it may be, um, but know what those things are in advance and mm -hmm. even ask the exact same questions because there have been times you know when you're evaluating people say oh he gave this great answer about this question well did you ask that question to the other person no so you don't always know yes yeah so maybe a list of questions the thing that i'm hearing just recurring over this the course of this conversation is the more consistency you have built into your process the better able you're you are to then be objective because if you're if you're looking at the same data, then it's not only reliable, but it's valid. If you're not asking the same things, if you're not looking for the same things, if you're if every resume is a different set of criteria, then inevitably your system, your your system for doing your so-called system for doing things is flawed. It's going to be flawed. And so to bring that home in a way that translates to the bottom line, I think we have to recognize that there are, you're hiring for a reason. Ideally, you've done a workforce plan. You've looked back and you've said, okay, here are the missing skills. Here's where our business is going. Here's what we need to fill those gaps. And so you know that you're looking for skills. You're not looking for a person. Um, whereas I think the going mindset for so many, that especially those that I work with, and I love being able to help work with people in this space because I think there's a, there's a beautiful opportunity here, not only just to help people with their businesses, but to help people in general. And not only to help the employer, but to help the employee. I abhor hearing the word fit. Fit. I knew you were going to say fit. You knew I was going to say Everybody, that. you know, the <laughs> cultural fit piece. And, of course, you want people who, in theory, fit with your culture. You know, people who will mesh well with the team. People who will be, um, you know, a great team player and understand, you know, the goals of the business and the ideals and all of that. Uh, one counter to that that I've heard that I think is helpful is – additive to the culture not a fit mm -hmm. fit mm -hmm. sort of implies the same mold but something that adds to the culture in a way where um you know that fit piece is sort of there but but what are they bringing that's a little bit different but also still will combine with the fabric of our organization um, but you're right if you don't have written down criteria and you're just interviewing for a job and you interview three people at the end of the day you're like ah, oh, i really liked you know so and so and why'd you like them? Oh, they, we had a great conversation. What'd you talk about? Oh, we talked about, you know, the fact that we went to the same college or, you know, we, we both played football, whatever it may be. And all of those things, that affinity bias that you get is so natural. All of these things are natural. No, you know, everyone has implicit biases. So it's not an indictment of anybody. 
But when you are trying to recruit or, you know, retain employees with the idea of being more diverse and having different people in the room, you know, studies show over and over again that a more diverse group makes a better decision, that they have higher profits, all those types of things. You have all these wonderful goals. You have to make sure that you're doing the intentional things to have that bear out. Yeah, that's excellent. I think um, what I, what I, what I, th- I think the average employer is going to ask is, how do I know if this is even a problem that's endemic at my organization? How do you know? How do you detect if there is such a thing as implicit bias? We could obviously look at a job and, and we could say, well, we only have one kind of person in this job, and that's all that ever applies to this job. That's w- another thing that I hear a lot: is only this type of person applies to this job. Is that cart before the horse, or is that horse before the cart? What are we talking about here? What's first? Do we know if there's an implicit bias that's causing this dynamic, or is it actually just a circumstance of the environment that we all live in here in New Orleans, Louisiana? Sure. I mean, we have to look at the pipeline of people who are coming to us, the people who we appeal to. So if you have a job description that has certain words in it that um, you know, really indicates that a man is going to be great for this job, well, then that's who's going to apply. Um, and, and maybe that's natural. Can you give me an example of that? I'm, I'm loving that. Um, well, something like an oil fill worker or an offshore worker. You know, gosh, it would be really hard if we had to hire a woman to, to ride on this boat or to... What would be a concern on that? So, okay, so I um, have traditionally recruited for my partner's business, which is in the construction space. Okay, and so... I think that actually on occasion, and, and it's not something that I, uh, we literally um, go out of our way to, in fact, we just hired somebody who is, who doesn't fit the mold, um, as one would say. And that was a, a deliberate decision to, uh, m- many years ago, where we sat down and we said, okay, these are not going, going to be determinants of, of who fits or who doesn't fit. Again, that awful word, which I just hate. Um, <clears throat> however, Sometimes there are natural concerns, especially when you're out on a, for example, an oil rig. And I have a, I went to MBA school at Tulane with a, um, with a woman who was the first Chevron offshore engineer, chief engineer on a rig. Um, and she said she was the only woman for the first 10 years of her career out on offshore rigs in the Gulf of Mexico. Is there a, a legitimate concern there? She never, as far as I know, she never had any real safety concerns. But is that a legitimate concern? Well, I mean, that's more along the lines of an explicit bias rather than an implicit bias. Like we don't want women for this job because we think that women won't be able to manage the physical aspects of the job, or that the men won't really like to work with a woman, and that's going to ruin the or dynamic. That there may be some platform. inherent risk, really, in terms of uh, you know, I mean, the go to her safety. Yeah, her. her, her Safety. I mean, you know, but this is why you have, for example, pre-employment physicals. So there are some men out there who just aren't that strong and, you know, maybe not that physically fit. And you're assuming that because they're a man, you know, if you have these two resumes in front of you, you think this man's going to be this great fit for this rig position. Um, I know a lot of men who are not great for a rig position. And yet, on the other hand, there are women who might break the mold who are wonderful fit for that position, who will be um, you know, brought into the fold, who will be respected by their coworkers if they can do the job. And so that's the piece, right? What are the job requirements and can this person do them, whether it's physical, mental, mental psychological, whatever it may be, and, and your ideas of who may or may not be able to do those, they may not be illegal, but they're limiting. They're limiting your ability to recruit. And, you know, it's, it's a little bit like the resume where one resume was um, more highly qualified. 
um, if you're passing on the more highly qualified person implicitly or explicitly, that's your loss. And so as people embark on these efforts to be more mindful about DEI efforts, it says, how can we do things differently? How can we shake things up? How can we try new things? Um, how can we include people differently? How can we bring in new perspectives? And all of those things require intentionality because if you do what you've always done, you'll get what you've always gotten. Yeah. And that may be fine by you. Yeah. Um, but if you are looking for something different, then you have to actively try to be different. Let me um, let me quickly just follow that up with with a, a quick point about um, what it is that the re what it is that the resume states. So, if if in the resume you're looking for someone who can lift 50 pounds, who is not, who in the course of their job will probably not be lifting 50 pounds, but that's a criteria that you put in there, whether you know it or not, probably because you're looking for a very specific profile that limits the the kind of applicant who would apply for a job. What do we call that, uh, Miss Attorney? Cat well, <laughs> I mean, you know, again, that goes more towards explicit bias. It goes towards, um, you know, discrimination that you may not even realize you are doing by including job criteria that's not essential to the job. Mm -hmm. What people want to do is include their essential job functions for the purposes of accommodations, for the purposes of making sure that people can, you know, meet the physical criteria. I would say at the end of the day, there's a reason why the physical criteria is often tested by a pre-employment physical, a post-offer pre-employment physical to be legally compliant. And then you'll see who can who can do those pieces. But mm -hmm. you know, me putting on my resume that I can lift 100 pounds, I can put whatever I want on my resume. And as we <laughs> know, people often fluff their resume. So you know, don't lean so much on what people say about their resume. You know, ask the questions that really dig at what you really want to know about their skills. Um, ask performance-based questions and, and not questions about where'd you grow up and what school did you go to and what do we have in common, those things aren't helpful, truly. You know, what are the skills-based things that you can get at? And so we've talked a ton about implicit bias in hiring, but there are a ton of studies about implicit bias in performance reviews, how mm. women and men are judged mm. more differently in terms of the words that are used in performance reviews. And then in a lot of industries, people wonder why there's a glass ceiling and why women aren't reaching certain levels within the company. Well, you really got to dig because you say, we, we tried. Everybody says we tried. You know, we, we really wanted diversity on our nonprofit board. Okay, would you, what did you actually do about it? So, you know, there's a lot of more recent studies about how to tease out bias within performance reviews. Um, I call them gateways and pathways. Gateways are the bias to get in the door. So they're the resume type things, or the interviewing questions that um, sort of eliminate you before you can even get in the door. And then there's a bunch of bias that can exist through the pathways. Um, certainly the pathway through the job includes performance reviews. It also includes opportunities. You know, it, within the law firm world, because that's the world I know the best, if you're given the best assignment with the best hours and the best clients and the highest rates, you are uh, on a path to success that's not always directly related to how well you do your job you were given a really plum opportunity. So making sure that people, you know, all different types of people are given different opportunities. Making sure that, uh, for example, opportunities aren't given to women with children just because you're worried that they won't be able to work long nights or travel or that they won't want to. Uh, talk to them, see if that's, that's their ambition. So just be more mindful and don't rest on your assumptions about what other people want their, for their career, but really try and make sure that you're being mindful about spreading opportunities for everybody's professional growth. Yeah, so I think this is a topic that we could talk probably the rest of the afternoon and evening about, but we're going to wrap it up for time, um, and I really see a part two coming on. Yeah, so stay tuned, and thanks for joining us, and we'll talk to you next time.
Thank you.